Hey everybody, you're listening to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthaus here in Tucson, Arizona. This week we have a special surprise. We have with us uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist herself, a real live one just like Jacqueline. And uh, we are going to talk about all the things that we don't get a chance to talk about very much in academia and in journalism and in our daily lives, really. I mean, we don't say enough how important it is to talk about climate change with the people that you trust most. That's what we're going to do today. Joining me from the Hudson Valley is Andy Revkin, a climate writer for The New York Times. Hey, Andy. It's great to be with you. And joining us from Orono, Maine, is Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Hey, Jacqueline. Hey. I wish there were a way to say, like, what's the opposite of paleo? Like Neo. Neo? But that's, yeah. that doesn't mean future, though. It just means Oh, new. I guess. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I do all future stuff, and you do all past. So it's yeah. like, yeah. We need a word. Anyway. Oh, we need a prefix for future. Yeah. Let's talk about this in the podcast. A futuro climate scientist. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, let's definitely talk about it. That'd be fun. And our guest for this week is a climate scientist, Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech University. Hey, Catherine. Hey, great to be here. So the big news that everyone's talking about this week is that tantalizing New York Times climate change editor job announcement. I mean, wow. First off, it was quite literally the very most beautiful job posting I've ever seen. And secondly, right there in the job announcement, they say this is the most important story in the world. So, I mean, how do you, t- I, I, I don't, I'm sort of at a loss for words. I mean, this is something that people have been saying about climate change for a while, but it feels new, so like, it feels like something new to have the New York Times saying this explicitly and then, you know, doing sort of a rethink of their coverage and trying to brand it this way. Um, so Andy, of course, um, yeah. did, they, did they ask you about this? I mean, it sounds like a lot like what you've been doing uh, I first a long time. Heard about, I first heard about it through uh, Twitter oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, and one email. And, and it's a pretty slick, as you said, it's interesting that the, the graphic elements to the announcement uh, imply, in fact, the, the job post implied too, they're looking very much at this being across all different kinds of media. You know, it's not uh, just about text or great narrative reporting. It's, uh, you know, visualizations and whatever. And, and I think that's exciting. Uh, it's also important to note it's, it's one of three uh, jobs that they're creating. Uh, one's on education, one on uh, gender. That Because I think there's a recognition that these both, all of these posts have been too uh, compartmentalized. You know, climate historically was edited out of the science section and and that's not going away there's still the science section will still do climate stories the energy uh, business section is still going to be doing business stories what they're looking for is it seems is kind of a a a full a full uh, course a full suite um, coordination and trying to expand the storytelling even more and as, as anyone who's been watching the times recently they've done some amazing things with drones and and uh, graphics that were unthinkable when I was in Greenland in 2004. So I think it's exciting. It, and it's part of, a, I, I, it's something that I experienced in the newsroom, the compartmentalization. 
and I know Catherine and, and those of us in academia and Jacqueline know it's in academia too. We have this horrible habit of humans historically of dividing things up into um, um, sort of disciplines that with an issue like climate change or an issue like how do you deal with modern gender and education questions, they, they transcend simple compartmentalized thinking. Mm -hmm. That's what's cool about it. Yeah. So as consumers of the news, um, Catherine and Jacqueline, what, what are your thoughts? I love this idea. I completely agree with Andy that for a long time we have shoved climate change into this green environment or sometimes even more narrowly physical science box. And the reality is that we care about climate change because it affects us. It affects almost every aspect of our lives here on planet Earth. It affects our economy. It affects our energy, our job opportunities, international security and national security. It affects uh, so socioeconomic gaps, you know, making rich richer and poor poorer. And it also affects our health, not just our physical health, even our mental health. So the fact that we have this huge global issue that affects us at the local scale, our lives, where we live, our communities that we're embedded in, that type of an issue cannot be just pushed into one little aspect of reporting that only deals with kind of niche issues. It's something that we have to, we have to look at from this broad perspective. And, and actually, Catherine's the perfect person to have in the con conversation here because there's another way this is not as important not to compartmentalize, uh, particularly as a science or technological story, because the choices we make are based on our values. You know, how much do you value the future? How much do you value the life in sub-Saharan Africa? Uh, as it relates to our energy choices. And th that's been, it's been too long pigeonholed this kind of, when, when I hear, that's why I resist ideas like two degrees because it, it makes it sound technical when in fact the decisions um, will be made as the, Pope, as the Pope pointed out very powerfully based on our, um, our ethics. Uh, well, I'm really excited about this um, partly because I, you know, of course I love the fact that they're committed to improving their, their coverage on what is a really important story. Um, but also, you know, I think the New York Times has has really led in some of these. Uh, I don't know. Not, I'm not a journalist, but the just seeing really cool, innovative stories. Um, like thinking back to that snowfall um, story by John Branch the, about the avalanche at Tunnel Creek, and just how that kind of took the internet by storm in terms of just really beautiful multimedia, long form journalism that integrated everything from, you know, video to just really gorgeous science writing. And, you know, thinking about the New York Times as a, a, a venue that, you know, a, a, a position like this could, could really leverage lots of different kinds of, of storytelling and journalism, um, including, I think, they, they explicitly talk about different kinds of media, um, even podcasts. And to me, that, I think, is one of the, the most exciting things as it sort of represents just not not just the future of journalism um, and science journalism, but just the 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 fact that you know we have these amazing opportunities for media and social media to really integrate to tell what I think are ultimately much more human stories as well, which you know gets at what you guys were saying about the importance of this coverage um, and just making it personal and making people relate to it. Yeah. So this is a great uh, time to shift to to Catherine, and we wanted to invite you here, Catherine, because I think that you, among um, all you know, scientists that have put themselves in the public sphere uh, squarely, you've been someone that's really resonated with a lot of people. I think in the way that you um, are able to talk about um, this really important issue 
that's obviously clearly important to you personally and put yourself right in the middle of the conversation um, to sort of be the bridge between people that that either don't understand what's happening or don't want to understand what's happening or are trying to understand what's happening but failing because it's really hard. Um, I wanted to start with uh, a question that I think is is sort of cuts to the heart of of this whole uh, episode is how do you engage with people who disagree with you? That's a great question. And I have to admit, first of all, that I was sort of uh, pitchforked into this situation where these conversations were necessary. Moving to West Texas about 10 years ago, where at the time probably 90% of people or more didn't think climate was changing and certainly wasn't humans. I kind of had a choice, either don't have any conversations or else start having some of these difficult conversations because otherwise it didn't leave that many people around to talk to. So when I first started being a scientist, of course, and talking about climate science from a scientific perspective, I would always start with the science because first of all, that is what I know most about and I feel most confident and familiar with. And second of all, I would start with the science because in my mind as a scientist, it was a very linear progression. Like, first of all, we look at the physical evidence, then we look at the theoretical evidence, then we decide, yes, this is real and it's serious. Then we go on and we talk about what are the solutions that we can engage in. What dawned on me pretty quickly though, is that that conversation would rapidly get hijacked. It would get hijacked almost immediately when all the but what about started popping up because people are not blank slates when it comes to the topic of climate change. For a number of years now, climate change has been the most politicized issue in the United States. And part of yeah, this- above abortion, right? Oh yeah, it's, it's beating abortion and the death penalty. I mean, <laughs> I never thought we would see that. Uh, and so when you turn on the TV or when you go to your favorite website or when you go to your favorite newspaper or online media source, depending on where they fall on the spectrum ideologically, you could hear stuff that's accurate and real and based on science, or you could hear stuff that is basically fabricated myths. So a lot of the people I was talking to, they had a lot of these myths that they had heard about climate change. So starting with the science, the conversation would rapidly devolve into what I think of as the whack-a-mole game at the fair, where you whack one mole in the head and then another one pops up and you can do that pretty much infinitely and go nowhere. Yeah, it's like, what What about volcanoes? They also emit a lot of carbon dioxide. Wasn't it warmer in the little or, you know, in the middle in the medieval warm period? All these things, you know, we've heard this over and over. Your attention gets drawn away because as a scientist, I think you want to answer those questions factually as well. Well, yes, it just leads you down a rabbit trail. What were you going to say, Jacqueline? Oh, I was just going to say what's funny about the the um, the whack-a-mole game, which I love that metaphor. Um, it's way better than moving targets. Um, it's more fun. But um, the whack-a-mole game, eventually, if you whack all the science moles, eventually what you get to, at least in my experience, is they end up being politics moles, right? Like, oh, we just don't want you to regulate our choices. Or, oh, you want us to all live like cave people. Or, oh, what about Al Gore's giant house? And, and it's like at a certain point, you just you get to you get to this this realm of the conversation that's not about the science at all. Right, but there's, there's still, you're still whacking moles. And as long as you're whacking moles, I just don't think the conversation's gonna advance. So how do you break out of that? Well, this is what I've learned. And it's, I have to say, it's hard. And every time I'm in one of these conversations, I have to consciously remind myself of this. What I found is the place to start is to, even if the conversation has already sort of begun on one trajectory, is to 
wrap your hand around the trajectory of the conversation and wrench it over to something that a, a value, a concern, a love, a care, a worry that you genuinely share with the person who you're talking with. Don't like try to, you know, make up something and be fake sympathetic or anything like that. But as, you know, as humans, we're all humans living on this planet, there, we have so much in common. In fact, what we have in common is much more than what divides us, even though it often seems like the opposite. So can we think of something that we genuinely share? Can we start with that and then from the heart, not so much from the head, from the heart say, this is why I care about climate change because climate change affects whatever it is that we've connected over, whether we have a family member or a loved one who's in the military. Um, so we're concerned about security both here in the US as well as um, on other sides of the world where people tend to get sent. Um, whether it's the place where we live that we're worried about the agriculture and we're worried about the local economy, whether it's our kids who say have asthma or something like that. Connect over that and draw the parallels between why we, I care about this and why I care about climate change. And then, and this is really important, always make sure that we introduce a solution that the person we're talking to can get on board with. So when I'm talking to people, they expect me to come out with, you know, well, the government has to regulate this and, you know, we need people telling us what to do. They're expecting me to kind of trot out the nanny state solution. When I instead come out with the idea that, guess what? Texas already gets 50% of its energy from wind on a windy night. And Fort Hood is going renewable because it's the cheapest thing for Fort Hood, the biggest army base in the US to do. And did you know that we have eight times more jobs per megawatt of renewable energy versus old fossil fuel energy that we produce here in Texas? When you start to tell them stuff like that, then people are like, oh, really? Oh, well, mm. nobody can really object to those types of solutions. Yeah, and some of my reporting um, agrees with that. I mean, this is... Uh in the middle of a moment when the Republican Party is trying to, to remake itself, we see a, a shift towards language um, supporting renewable energy um, among Republicans that are, that are up for uh, election in swing states right now. And that is so important, I think, because it shows that bridge is something that resonates with voters and that can get people elected that are able to... Uh, support those sort of clearly um, beneficial um, actions that are also beneficial for the climate. And framing it that way is that not not even a climate issue at all, but it's just something that's better. It's a better way of doing things, I think, is something that is able to, to win over um, people that otherwise would not want to have a conversation about climate at all. Yeah, this has come up a bunch of times. The, the one of the, I think I might have mentioned this on a previous uh, episode. The uh, John Sutter went to of CNN went to um, Woodward County, Oklahoma, which Yale uh, in a survey identified as the most skeptical global warming county in the country. And and he just talked to people. And the interviews there, I put them on Dot Earth, but they're on. You just search for Sutter, Oklahoma climate, you'd find them on the web. And and the people for the first few minutes, uh, when they're talking about climate, they're, they're all across the board, old, young, uh, they're all resistant. And this older woman says, yeah, out here, Al Gore's name is a cuss word. And, 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 but then the second half is about energy. And even the guy who's an oil and gas uh, uh, executive in his blue rolled up shirt and tie and stuff, he says, yeah, we have half of our roof covered in solar panels. We're planning to do the whole thing. And John told me in an email later that 
um, he, he went to the guy's house and he says, absolutely true. And, and so what this says to me is, and this can be weird, but um, uh, there's so much energy engagement that can happen behind climate disputes that sometimes the best thing is not to talk about climate change. Well, as I say, and I know this is a weird thing for a scientist, I don't think we have to agree on the science as long as we can agree on the solutions. I mean, obviously in a perfect world, I would really prefer that people not think what I do is fake. I mean, you know, there's astronomy and then there's astrology and then there's climate science in most people's minds. <laughs> um, I would prefer that people recognize that this is real. But hey, if we can agree on the solutions for other reasons, then we're going to end up in the right place anyways. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's even if I were to find out to my horror that we've been wrong about climate change all this time, I would still be pushing for, um, you know, public transportation and um, you know, you know, more infrastructure for you know getting off of fossil fuels. You know, as as just for your general day to day commute. Um, for my nephew who has really severe asthma, right? I mean, so at the end of the day, that benefits him. And it benefits, you know, millions of people, even if there's no, even if there's no positive impact in terms of a, of a climate change perspective. So, yeah, Jacqueline, so let's kick, kick it up a notch here. Um, how do we talk about this when the people that may disagree with us are our friends or family, like close, close people that that we we value their opinion and um, we're going to see them again. <laughs> you know, it's not just a, it's a conversation that you have on a reporting assignment. It's your it's your mom or it's your cousin or um, I don't know. Um, Catherine, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I'm going to say, well, first of all, let me just say uh, related to something Jacqueline mentioned that one of the most uh, unknown and unappreciated papers I think that I've read is one that was published a number of years ago by Bruce Anderson, who's a colleague of mine at Boston College, or Boston University, I mean. And he asked this question, he said, what if there's some unknown factor that we haven't discovered yet causing climate change? So let's calculate how much of the warming that unknown factor could be responsible for if we give everything else, every other known source of um, influence on climate, the sun, volcanoes, and greenhouse gases, if we give them their lowest possible value. So we know that greenhouse gases trap heat. We know that they've been increasing um, in the atmosphere. But if you give them their lowest value, what remaining part of the warming could be something unknown? And what he found was back then, the number may be different now, but back then, no more than at the most 25% of the observed warming could possibly be not human if there was some other natural factor. So that's a really interesting thing that I don't feel like many of us know. I don't think his paper has a lot of citations. I don't see it mentioned many places. And I just think that's a really cool study. So if we're wrong, we aren't more than 25% wrong, and <laughs> probably a lot less than that. Um, anyway, so having these conversations, I have to confess, having a conversation with somebody who is very near and dear to you is harder than any other conversation because you are in a relationship and you cannot walk away. So if things do not end so well, you're still there. You still have this relationship. You're still gonna see each other. So not only that, but having conversations with our nearest and dearest, especially if they are older than us, 
there tends to be that whole lack of respect thing because, you know, with some justification, our elders are older and wiser than us. They have been around a few more blocks than us. They do know more than us. And they probably wiped our bums when we were little and shoved food into our mouths and wiped it off our chins. So you can understand how it is a little difficult for them to respect us when all of a sudden we come along with a view or a perspective that contradicts the one that they have gotten from their own preferred media sources. So I have to say those conversations are the hardest. But how do we have those? The same way we have them with anybody. By starting off by connecting on the values, the loves, the concerns we have in common, and by ending with real solutions that we can agree on. And if we focus on the beginning and the ending, I think that we can find an enormous amount of common ground, even though we might not agree on the science. Yeah, this is this is pretty personal for me. Uh, I'm sure it is for all of us. But um, so my dad is a um, re is retired now, but he used to work for one of the major power suppliers for the West that produces coal, mostly coal power, right? And so he had an interesting perspective in terms of the energy grid and the feasibility of renewables and things like that. But you know, it's this interesting disconnect where, you know, he's a staunch Republican, I'm, you know, not. Uh, and, uh, and so when we have these conversations, you know, he, he is incredibly proud of me. He's proud of the work that I do, proud of my PhD, my research. Um, he knows I, I research climate change. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting to see, you know, he can post, you know, an article on Facebook about, you know, how climate change isn't real, but then also post a, an episode of warm regards, uh, you know, and, sh and talk about how proud he is of his daughter. And so it's, it's, it's interesting, because, um, you know, you you've, like, like, Catherine, like you said, you've got this personal relationship, you can't walk away from and you know, I'll, I will never walk away from my dad. Um, and sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll have our disagreements, and he's got his area of expertise, and I have my area of expertise. But at the end of the day, what we do come around to is things like, you know, my nephew, his grandson's asthma, and, um, you know, his love of the environment that we both share in terms of, um, you know, the, you know, protecting natural resources, you know, plant, yes, let's plant more trees, whether, you know, in his perspective, it doesn't matter whether or not they're a good carbon sink or not, he just, you know, thinks they're nice. So we can kind of come together on, on some of the things that we both share, um, and the values that we both share, even as we, you know, don't necessarily agree on on some of the other sides. And for, uh, there's a friend of mine, Paul Paul Galay. He's the uh, head of Riverkeeper, which is a great environmental organization here in the Hudson Valley. And one of the things they focus on is oil trains and oil shipments in the river. Very active and aggressive on um, the nuclear power and that kind of thing. But he he's gone on his own kind of uh, learning journeys around the valley, going to hunting and fishing clubs and stuff, and. And, and a lot of this is just like time, time, just hanging out or playing guitar or, 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 you know, going to a fish fry with, with people who, um, and, and just becoming comfortable. And, and that's what builds the, um, openness that can result in getting at these kinds of issues. And then you start to recognize potentially, you know, what the divisions are between people and how, where the constraints on those are. I think that's a really key point, Andy, because Larry Hamilton from the University of New Hampshire, who does a lot of public opinion polling and ranks these different issues like we were talking about before, like the death penalty and abortion and climate change in terms of how polarized they are. Well, one of the issues he's looked into is do you trust scientists? And apparently the question of whether you trust scientists is incredibly polarized. There are a lot of people who don't trust scientists. And so how can you 
uh, build a relationship with somebody who doesn't trust you. The only way is to spend time with them and let them get to know you. That's a beautiful way to do it. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a values-based um, way of decision-making. Uh, I mean, a lot of people in this country, as you well know, Catherine, um, have their faith as their 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 soul, you're not soul inspiration, but a major part of their life. And, and, um, you know, there are a lot of other people that, that, that trust the science that comes out and says, well, if the science, you know, I, I'm just thinking of, you know, the nutrition studies that you hear on the evening news. It's like, well, if this is bad for me, then I guess I need to cut back yeah. on it. Um, I, I would so. actually disagree with you slightly there though. And that is that in, um, so I am actually not American. I'm sorry to say, although I have lived here in Texas for 10 years. Well, you just said sorry, so I think you gave it yeah. away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and in my experience, um, growing up in an evangelical church in Canada and then living in South America and then living here in the United States, uh, it is more a case of people, American Christianity has a tendency, and I don't mean this as a blanket statement, there's many, many exceptions, but there is a, a large tendency in the United States for political ideology to write our statements of faith. And when the Bible and our political ideology come in conflict in terms of how we should be treating strangers or people in need, for example, or how we should, what perspective we should have on God's creation and the planet, when our ideology and the Bible come in conflict, I'm very sorry to say that for many people, political ideology trumps the Bible. And so I don't really think you can call that a true religion. Um, to actually quote to quote the book of James in the Bible, true religion is to um, care for the poor and, and the widows. It's it's interesting too because I, I think that you know as another example that some of our listeners may relate to as well. Um, you know I was I was very fortunate to take a, an environmental history class with Bill Cronin at the University of Wisconsin, and he made a very an interesting but similar statement that you know when the evidence comes into like comes up against his convictions as you know an environmentalist um and so when his when the evidence as a historian comes against his convictions as an environmentalist he has to go with the evidence right that you have to be open to to, to allowing your um your your deep set your, your deeply uh, set beliefs be challenged by new evidence and i i feel like that's one thing that for me has been one of the most powerful things about being a scientist is that there are many things that i've changed my um changed my mind about when confronted with evidence anything from genetically modified food to even you know vaccines and i i feel like that process of of constantly rigorously um, interrogating my own ideas based on the evidence is is something that i think i learned as a scientist and i think most people don't don't learn that and i also think that even some scientists don't do that yeah, I, I'm amazed that you mentioned those two examples because those are my examples too. When you first hear something like, you know, the whole vaccine thing 10 or 15 years ago, you first hear about that and it's people who you trust telling you, oh, you shouldn't use vaccines. And then you have a new baby and you're like, oh my goodness, they're going to stab my baby with a needle. And then you start to freak out. But when you look at the evidence, you realize this whole thing doesn't have a leg to stand on. You guys could probably do like a whole other podcast on that. But it's, it's just fascinating. And you're right, Jacqueline, that often... We ourselves, we're human. And part of being human is the fact that we're all cognitive misers. We don't have the brain power anymore to absorb and process all the information there is out there in the world. So what do we do? We trust what other people are telling us who share our values. And hopefully a lot of that is correct, 
but often some of that is incorrect and it's really difficult to even just find the time, let alone the motivation, to question something that somebody is saying to us who we believe. Yeah, I wanted to go back a little bit to um, to what Jacqueline was saying and what Catherine was saying earlier that my own family, um, my, my, my mom and dad are both um, pretty conservative and they live in Kansas and you know, I grew up there too, of course. And I voted Republican in my first election and went to a Catholic college in St. Louis. And I started a meteorology program there and um, had the same sort of thought. I mean, this was, you know, early 2000s, so it hadn't totally been um, politicized to the point it is now. But I had the idea that climate was not that important to discuss, that that it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't really something that I wanted to to learn about in my degree program. And then I started to to take classes in uh, philosophy and theology at the this at, at my Jesuit college, St. Louis University, and um, started to learn, you know, based on my faith that caring for um, caring for the poor, caring for people that um, are left sort of sort of disregarded by society is uh, is a noble calling in and of itself and that climate change matches with that uh, in, a, in a lot of cases and so this was a case for me where my personal faith and my upbringing the way my parents raised me led me to change my mind on climate and and I thought that um, that you know it, it, it was almost like the issue was perfectly made for me at that point um, and it, it's interesting talking with my parents about that now too is where they just um, just moved to uh, uh, a farm that they spent their life savings on and retired there and they have have told us me and my sister that that they want a, a 99 year um, you know agreement that, this land will not be farmed. This will be left as native pasture because they care about the land that they grew up near. And you don't have to to agree with every aspect of climate science to know that the land is worth protecting and that people, your fellow humans, are worth um, considering as equals to you. And I think that's just um, a way that, for me at least, it, it's come full circle. So just, just for background, Eric, you made a decision a couple of years ago now not to do any traveling. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And you live well, in Tucson not, right now? Not or? any air travel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how long has it been and what type of things have, have happened to you since that you made that decision? Well, the decision was at the um, release of the, the AR5 IPCC report in the fall of 2013. And uh, for me, it was just one of those moments where... Read, reading the the sort of preamble to that report in a sleep deprived state of, of me saying this is something that we've run out of time to do in conventional ways so I need to start thinking in my own life which is what I can change at this very moment what's the what's the thing that I can do that would make the most impact and I ran my numbers through a carbon footprint calculator and at that time, I flew a lot for my work, and it was like 75% of my carbon footprint. So, so I was like, well, that would be a good start. Um, since then, you know, since we've had kids, um, my wife and I have, have started to 
think about relaxing that a little bit just because we, like you said, we live in Tucson. Um, for for our, our kids to see our parents, it's either at Christmas, especially at Christmas time, it's either driving through the mountains um, with in a snowstorm or taking a two or three hour flight. And I don't know, like we're still in the process of considering um, what what's the best thing for us and our family. But it seems like, you know, if you look at the global numbers, and this is something that I'm so happy that Andy always talks about, is that um, if you if you think of it in terms of like every person on Earth gets a carbon quota, which is not at all how the world actually works, then then, you know, like something like 70 or 80 or 90 percent of all people on Earth have never and will never fly. And, and it's something that only um, those of us that are relatively wealthy on a global scale ever get to do. So in that sense, it's sort of unjust to use use your carbon um, in in that way when we have people that don't even have electricity in large parts of of the planet. But at the same time, you have to balance having a family in 2016. And I don't know, I feel like, you know, maybe once uh, once a year or once every other year or for something that's unavoidable, um, we 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 could fly. Um, but it's just sort of one of those things, you know, this week is my mom's 60th birthday too. It's like, it would be nice to be there with her, but I, you know, I have a lot of work to do here. So it's just like, I don't know. It's it's something I'm constantly thinking about. Well, thank you. That's a very honest answer. And I think that, (laughs) I think that that really highlights kind of one of my personal beliefs, which is there is no one perfect way to go about living the right life. Um, I mean, if I have any pet peeve, it's somebody else trying to tell everybody what they should do. <laughs> if, sure, yeah, of you know, course. there's one thing that everybody should do. I mean, you're right. Every choice we make is a compromise. And we make these choices for many different reasons. Climate change is one reason, and it's a very important reason. But there's many other reasons, family, relationships, um, efficiency, practicality, what our job demands. So yeah, I was just curious how that worked out. And I really love your perspective on it. Um, I have to say for myself, I struggle with the same thing, because obviously, as a scientist, both Jacqueline and I too, we get invited to a lot of places to speak or we have to travel to conferences. And so I'm always asking people if I can give virtual presentations, first of all, just because those are just so easy. You do it virtually and there's you know almost no carbon involved. But I've also looked into and done a lot of research and actually chose a carbon offset program. The one I chose is called Climate Stewards because they work with people in third world countries to plant trees and to replace their old ways of cooking with new cook stoves to specifically replace the carbon that I produce through burning. And so I chose that because, yeah, because of those compromises, you're right. They will never get to fly, but when I fly, I feel like I'm actually hopefully just changing the possibility of our future by just that little infinitesimal amount. And it's always a trade-off. So there is no black and white cut and dry 10 commandments of how to live green that we can really adhere to, is there? Yeah, and it's it's been something that I've been trying to be clear with when I talk about this, which I don't like to do very often, but it's just... Um, oh man, so I, I just pinned I, you down to it. No, no, <laughs> it's totally fine. Um, but, but it's like, yeah, every, everyone obviously has their own decision-making system that they have for their own life. And... I am not about to tell anyone what they should do or sh- what they shouldn't do. But I just think, you know, relaying my own personal story is powerful in that way and is something that we've decided to do for these reasons. Um, and for me, um, I didn't want to do offsets because I 
um, started a PhD program here at uh, the University of Arizona and then ended up leaving it. But um, but I had a I had a colleague that was working on studying offsets and um, when you talk about tree planting, there's a lot of um, externalities of, of tree planting, you know, that there, there are people that are paid to look after the trees and make sure they lived their, um, you know, whatever 60 to 80 year lifespan so that you can count all that carbon towards that offset. And then they're not doing other things that could provide for their family or they're dependent on that income or, I mean, it's just, it's a very messy uh, thing. And I know that you know that, and I just wanted to, for our listeners to know that that there is no perfect answer. You know, flying with offsets is not perfect. Not flying is not perfect. Flying is not perfect. You know, there's nothing that has an easy answer in this. Well, there's one last thing that I find important. When I do fly, and and sadly, I do fly a lot, and it impedes not just the climate, but also family, quality of life and stuff. But uh, like just this spring, just to give you an example, I, I was invited to go to Nairobi by the by UNEP, the U- United Nations, you know, to run panels on achieving the sustainable development goals. And and and, and but I, every moment I had free, I escaped from that hermetically sealed conference center and went to the slums of Nairobi because I'd never been to sub-Saharan Africa. And I did a ton of reporting on the incredible energy challenges there and and opportunities to make people's lives better right now and and then i i spent a few hours i got to get into nairobi park and i'm gonna and i haven't had time but i'll be doing a bunch of output related to conservation in the anthropocene you know nairobi is invading a national park essentially and and so so you know there was not well i think i slept three or four hours a day but so making the most (laughs) making the most of those trips is really important too yeah, that's that's exactly what I try to do too. So when I get invitations, I always get tons of invitations. I stack them up and I sort them out geographically. And I don't actually go to a place until I have like this critical mass where I know I can give anywhere between 10 to I think my record is 25, you know, different talks or workshops of events, you know, within a couple of days. So the I actually calculated for a trip I did to DC last year, I calculated my carbon footprint if I'd done each event separately. And it ended up being identical to if I lived in the DC suburbs and just went into DC for each event compared to having to fly there from Texas. So you're right, there's things we can do. And the easiest thing for any individual person to do, because we're definitely discussing kind of the nuances of our particular lifestyles. The easy, the number one thing I recommend is exactly what you said, Eric, is just Google carbon calculator, go online and calculate your carbon footprint, because that's the first thing I always get my graduate students to do. And then I ask them what they thought when they saw the answer. And every single one of them just about says that they're surprised because the most carbon and methane and other heat trapping gases, the most of this carbon pollution doesn't come necessarily from where they thought it came from. And so each of us have different lives and each of us can take different steps to reduce it. Yeah, and I also like to think about it in terms of, you know, how can I do the most good? Um, You know, can I do the most good, you know, you know, jumping off a cliff, like, can I do the most good? I'm sure some people out there probably think yes. No. Hopefully not. <laughs> uh, or, can, you know, can I do the most good by, you know, retiring to a hippie commune or, you know, does flying to the Falkland Islands, you know, once-ish a year to look at the impacts of climate change on, you know, critical animal habitat, you know, draw enough attention to to the plight of these animals and, to, you know, talking about things like sea level rise, you know, in the Gulf of Maine or, um, you know, the other kinds of research that I do, you know, around the country and, 
you know, teaching classes and, you know, all, all of the, the flying that I do that is, is related to my research. It's, you know, through, for collaborating with colleagues, presenting at conferences where I'm learning things. It, it all kind of builds that critical mass of research and outreach. And, you know, is that, I, I, I have to believe at the end of the day that that does more good than, um, you know, just trying to spend all of my time fiddling the the carbon dial down as much as possible. And, you know, having said that, you know, I, I do make lifestyle choices as much as I can to, to offset, you know, my, my own emissions. And I, and I'm always wrestling with this and, and grappling with, you know, the, this kind of practice what you preach concept. But what I really love about, you know, what, what Catherine said earlier is that, you know, climate change is only one of the many many things that goes into our decision-making process. And at the end of the day, it, it, it's probably not the most important thing even for most of us, right? Like at the end of the day, your families or, you know, your children, your, 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 your pets, you know, your friends might be the most important thing. And those are, those are in turn kind of informing what you're doing because you care about the planet that those people that you love will inherit. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I would never want, you know, I, I just would love to destroy this myth of, of, of climate scientists as the sort of, you know, doomsday naysaying killjoys that just want everyone to go live in, in caves and, and not have any fun. Um, because that's not, that, that's not sustainable either. And so you have to balance all of these things with, you know, against the, it's like, what's the carbon footprint of the margarita that I need, you know, to get to the end of the <laughs> week, get through my right? day. Like, yeah. you know, like you have to have some joy too. Like I, I play PlayStation, you know, and I, you know, like that's going to, that's going to generate emissions. And if I don't do that, then maybe I will not um, be able to, you know, have that extra mental bandwidth to, to, to do this podcast. I don't know. Yes, exactly. I, I knit and sheep produce a ton of methane out there rear ends, but I mean, it keeps me sane <laughs> to have my hands doing something and I can see a physical product. You're right. So I love this. And I, I feel like, I mean, I hope people see this is such an honest, honest discussion we're having. And the common thread I feel that's running through all of this is mindfulness and thoughtfulness and love, love for our family, for our friends, for our communities. We care about the issue of climate change because we already care about people who would be affected by that. And that's not just us and our families, mm -hmm. but it's those around us too, right? Yeah, I was just going to say what 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 Jacqueline said, the jumping off a, a bridge thing or jumping off a cliff. Um, that was like a major uh, response to uh, in the comment section. I know I should never read the comment Ooh, section. But, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, for for when when the um when my um when when the flying thing came out, it was everyone's like, well, if you really want to reduce your carbon footprint, you want you just kill yourself, and and it's just like, yeah, like I guess that makes sense, but that's not how I hope anyone lives their life, you know. Um, it's just like, and, and you know, taking that to the next step is like. Um, like, can we try green roofs first before I kill yeah, myself? Like, exactly. Yeah. Try living off the grid uh, because that is possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah was, um, and my, my wife and I at that time were considering having a baby and we're like, well, this is a chance for us to actually put that into practice. You know, like if we decide not to have kids, then we are in effect like taking a person off of the planet that would have otherwise emitted carbon. And you know, for months and months and months, we, we thought about this and went into sort of like a deep despair about it. And we're just like thinking like, what is our life if it's just always going to be determined by our carbon footprint? And, and we decided it's like, we want 
more for for ourselves and we hope that we will do a good job raising our child to be cognizant of everything that's happening and you know um um you know gentle on the planet and and you know share values that we hopefully will help them to identify in themselves and and it's made our lives so great <laughs> to have our baby and we're having another baby um in about a month congratulations um, (laughs) yeah thanks yeah and actually i'm going to be taking a break um from the podcast i think we can announce this that um kate shepherd from huffington post will be filling in as a as a sort of a co-anchor during that time Um, and she's awesome perfect yeah and she has a fairly new baby Um, too i guess he's about a year old now yes she does yeah so i in the one thing that I love about this this podcast, and I think that's really come out in this episode, is that I want it to be sort of like a, a, an honest discussion of the things that that people are thinking but never really talking about enough. And hopefully, that's what this episode was. Welcome to Warm Regards, a therapy group where we overshare <laughs> about our climate. I'm Eric Holdhouse, and sorry. Well, speaking of climate angst, one last thing. So. You know, people are always talking about these terrible doomsday scenarios. And what I say is the planet's going to be okay. It's just us, our society, our civilization that's most at risk, right? Yeah, just us. So there's there's this little show called Last Man on Earth, which is the brainchild of Will Forte, one of the guys from Saturday Night Live. Why why I'm I'm mentioning it is because the whole premise is that, you know, people on Earth die because of some virus and there's this one guy left. So he is from Tucson. So he travels around the country painting alive in Tucson on all these billboards. And then he goes back to Tucson and sits there waiting for people to show up. And the whole show is about how all these odd, random assortment of people eventually trickle in, all of them more bizarre than the last and completely helpless to deal with the reality of, you know, a (laughs) post-apocalyptic society. Which, no offense, is sort of about how Tucson actually (laughs) originated. the point and then the last person to show up is this total like survivalist dude who had a career building homes for habitat for humanity and knows all about solar panels and he shows up and he looks at them he goes why the heck are you living in tucson (laughs) (laughs) i sometimes think like the the popularity of of shows like um like you know all the zombies shows like i've been um watching the walking dead and uh on, on the one hand, there's a part of a part of those shows that I think is appealing because it's like, wouldn't it be nice to not have anything to worry about, like all these deadlines, except just surviving? Like, so that it sort of appeals to me in that weird way. But the, on the other end of things, I think it taps into our angst about how much we, how unprepared we would be for that kind of, you know, that climate apocalypse or whatever the apocalypse would be. Um, so I taught this course, this graduate level seminar called Climate Culture and the Biosphere. And it's two and two and a half million years of climate change, human evolution, um, and uh, cultural change and environmental change. And these are all grad students, right? We ended almost every single discussion at the zombie apocalypse, right? Because <laughs> it was always like, well, what, what we've learned from this class is that in the zombie apocalypse, these kinds of structures would be, you know, really useful. And it was just amazing to me that that's where everyone went in that class is they just wanted to, to to think about you know just how completely unprepared and not resilient we are for for these apocalyptic scenarios that I think are, are on everybody's mind and it's just it's just nice to I don't know I think we need to 
I, I just I worry about that mentality and in terms of people's sustainability and, and, and grappling with environmental problems. Well, the, even though I love zombie shows. One last thought along those lines is um, this gets back to what we were saying before about uh, when you're in a conversation with somebody, somebody's thinking about how you're thinking or how much of what you're thinking is actually feeling. And, and a big challenge for humans, I think, is our we do gravitate toward uh, drama. Obviously, journalists gravitate toward argument. Uh, we all gravitate toward uh, fearful scenarios. How many movies have you watched that where where the divorce doesn't happen or the or the you know the it, it's the the tensions and, and the drama are the things that capture us most of the time, especially in that, in our current media environment, evolving one, and uh, how hard it is in the media to tell a good story that's is still you know it's really a challenge to me to to point to examples of things that are exciting that are going on and have that become resonant uh, as opposed to someone throwing something on Facebook that's an OMG kind of thing. So we're going to close the show with a positive feedback. And I think Jacqueline um, has our positive feedback for this week. Yeah, so I'm teaching field natural history this semester. I'm really excited about this class because natural history is a dying uh, field and it's just really great to have so many students excited to take the class and I had everyone do um, like a free write um, where they could list as many words as they could think of um, when they talked about um, uh, natural history and they had to come up with definitions um, because most of them actually didn't really know what it's about and I was really surprised that I that the terms like global change and climate and in, environmental change really came to the forefront um, which is not how, not what I expected. I expected most people to think of natural history as being this sort of, you know, dead, old, white guys with little indecipherable notebooks in the woods kind of, kind of a discipline. And so it really, it, the fact that it happened the same week that, you know, the, the announcement about the Anthropocene as a um, sort of, a, that we've entered this new, you know, geologic uh, period, um, that those two things kind of gelled for me, um, which, you're probably wondering, how is that positive? And I guess it's just this idea that we have this generation that is in college now that, you know, has been raised as sort of a global change generation. And um, they they just, they think it's important to, to, they think it's relevant to their lives, to the natural world. Um, and you don't have to, you don't have to like argue with them or convince them that it matters. They just, they're like, you know, we talk about digital natives. They're like, they're climate natives. That's really cool. I have another podcast for them to listen to besides ours. It's Generation Anthropocene out of Stanford University. It's really cool. It's it's done by young people, and it's uh, about uh, embracing this moment. You know, and I say all the time, speaking to students particularly, I can't imagine a more unbelievable time to be alive. It, all of this is changing in our lifetimes. Between the curves of demographic curves are already clearly going to change later in the century. And things you can do can have an actual impact on the course of human events in a way that was not conceivable uh, in, in the past. Uh, we're it, we're at a kind of um, so there's a there's a coolness to that. There is a wow to it. You know, hold on to your seats, um, but get engaged. All right, I think we'll leave it there. That's our show for this week, and I really hope you guys all enjoyed it. Um, it's sort of what we're going for here at Warm Regards. So. Um, if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards and subscribe to our feed on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
We want to make this your show as much as we possibly can. So if there's something that you want us to discuss, please let us know. And that's it for Catherine and Andy and Jacqueline and our producer, Stephen Lacey. I'm Eric Holthouse. Thanks for listening, everybody.